Hello, and welcome to Med Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Spencer Claven. He is a classicist, an editor at the American Mind, an editor at the Claremont Institute, a host of the Young Heretics podcast, and also the author of How to Save the West. Nice modest ambition there in the title. We spoke about how we save the West and the reenchantment of the West. We spoke about uh, magic, um, prophesying, angels, demons, um, in the extended version of the episode, we also spoke about classical ideas about sexuality and about masculinity and femininity and whether we've uh, lost something by forgetting these old ideas. That extended version of the episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com. Remember, Main Mother Matriarch is a subscriber-funded podcast. I'm entirely reliant on your generosity in signing up for paid subscriptions. Um, at the Substack, you can also find bonus episodes. I do fortnightly episodes with my husband, as well as the whole back catalogue of extended episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Um, Spencer, I try not to start interviews by forcing people to give me their biographies because I always find it a bit stressful when I'm asked to <laughs> offer up my biography on air. Um, but in your case, I have heard you speak so beautifully about, um, in particular, your childhood interest in classics, hmm. which is, I think, more a more passionate and more early interest than any I've ever come across before. Oh, wow. <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. okay. husband did classics, and I've always kind of been able to piggyback a little bit off his... Um, of his knowledge, I can just text him if I um, need a classical reference explaining. Uh, <laughs> but I've never, I always you good had to be married to somebody with a different uh, discipline than yours, so that you can exactly. I can help him with English literature, and you know, um, and um, and I've always, I, honestly, I have always felt kind of intimidated by classics because I did a little, <laughs> I did a little bit at school, but I, 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 it's, it's, it's a, it's not my wheelhouse. Okay, and I really love this line in your book. Ways. It was something like, um, the classics is not above you, it is for you. I thought that was so beautiful. And anyway, could you just could you just start by by telling us how you discovered that classics was for you? Yeah, absolutely I can. And and thank you for that. It's certainly close to my heart and it's you know you're right i i hate telling my life story because i just never know which parts to include but this part always is included um it, it i kind of go back to I have this core memory of lying on the floor in my grandparents manhattan apartment reading richmond Lattimore's translation of the odyssey and this was like the first grown-up book i ever got to read i think feel like we probably all have that memory of like the first time we read something that wasn't kind of a concession to our childhood and for me it was the odyssey and like you have to understand these grandparents you know they were the kind that would let you watch as as many cartoons as you wanted so like to be reading homer instead of watching wiley e. coyote was just a, it was something it's an about eccentric it was really choice gripping. yeah yeah <laughs> um, and what it was, I think, is, you know, I even before that moment, I had just been so lucky to grow up surrounded by books. Um, my parents are both sort of literary types. My dad's a novelist. And I had to kind of grow up and go out into the world before I realized that this was actually really weird. Like this was not 
a normal way to live and to to treat books as kind of your staple was just an, an, an unusual thing. Um, because for me, it just was always really clear that being surrounded by books meant being surrounded by friends. Um, fundamentally, you know, just pulling these things down off the shelves, even if I there were things on there that I couldn't understand and all of that. I, I remember very vividly just that sense of companionship that I experienced early on. And as as you kind of indicated, that feeling of being of companionship, of being accompanied, of being surrounded by friends is is not kind of the usual assessment or approach to the canon or the classics. And there are sort of two alternative stories about what those bookshelves are, what those great works are, uh, one of which you indicated, and that is that they are a kind of fortress designed to keep you out. They are the sort of forbidding list of things you must read in order to be considered worthy and acceptable. And if you can't grok them, if you can't get with them, then, you know, you're, you're found wanting. And then the alternative and kind of follow on to that view is the view that the whole thing is misconceived kind of uh, axis of oppression to begin with. And because they, they've been used as gatekeepers, they, they kind of represent oppressions of various kinds, uh, retrograde attitudes about sex and, and race and all this stuff. Um, and I was just very fortunate that I knew from experience that neither of those things was true. And as I grew up and developed and read more, I, I actually realized that my experience of companionship, even though it was out of fashion, was actually kind of the common experience of a lot of these supposedly scary writers. You know, I mean, Machiavelli writes to Francesco Vittori when he's in exile that despite being kind of out in the boonies and having to work with his hands and all this stuff, he takes off his dirty clothes at the end of the day and he enters the ancient courts of ancient men and there communes with them graciously, you know, Cicero and Livy. And um, that's kind of the classics that I recognize, you know, when Du Bois says that he crosses the color line to shake hands with Aristotle, that's sort of the the secret society, the great communion that that drew me into it in the first place and still really is why I do what I do. I mean, obviously, as, as you suggested, there's sort of a lot more like technical learning and stuff that goes into it at, at the graduate level. But uh, I've, I've felt very disillusioned with academic classics, partially because they, they kind of felt like they were taking me away from that sense of, of communion. And so my career ever since then has sort of turned back toward just trying to usher in as many people as I can to as much of that uh, storehouse, that that kind of resource as as possible. Can I read out that Du Bois line, actually, because you've reminded me of it and it's so beautiful and I wish I could quote it verbatim, but I can't. So I've looked oh. it up. Hang on. Okay. Um, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac mm. and Dumas while smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. Yeah. And then he goes on to mention classical writers as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful idea to be mm. able to, um, to speak with the dead, right. In that way. Um, but so many people, as you say, don't feel as if, 
there is anything much to you know the the, the dead white men objection yeah. um, that we're so familiar with. I mean, I'll say to my shame that it took me a long time actually to get yeah. over the progressive assumption that is instilled in our education systems of all places nowadays mm. that there is something suspect about old things rather than the, the exact opposite which is that if an idea the text has persisted for a very long time that's that that says something in its favor yeah it seems that we have that exactly backwards right? <laughs> that's right yeah well i think some of this is understandable in that we're facing in many ways unprecedented challenges. We're dealing with technology that I think represents as radical and seismic a shift as the printing press did. I mean, I think we're at that level, that kind of 500-year level of transformation. And so many things are emerging that either we've never seen before or that take a form we've never seen before. So we'll have arguments about like what is truth, for example, which is a very, very old question, but they'll take place in the context of artificial intelligence and fake imagery and stuff that can just be confected uh, with increasing clarity and precision out of nothing. And one of the things that I tried to do in my book and through the process of writing the book, I think one of the things I learned about myself and about why I love old books is that by looking at how these problems have presented themselves in the past, you can start to kind of grasp at what about them is essential and what about them kind of strikes at the core of our humanity, um, which has two, to me, really salutary effects. One is it creates this wonderful feeling of knowing you're not alone, um, that these issues are are actually perennial, that the questions they raise are, you know, have been shared by other people, have been wrestled over by other people. And um, G.K. Chesterton says that the fellowship of uh, men is even more moving when it reaches across centuries that went, than when it reaches across nations. And I just find that a really touching thought. Um, but then the other thing that this kind of communion does is it allows you to get to the heart of some of these things and, and and understand sort of what's driving a lot of the craze over, I mean, post-truth politics, the book deals with transgender stuff. I mean, all of these kind of issues that seem really daunting and disorienting. Yeah, it's actually a point in a book's favor if it's if those sort of things have been dealt with 100, 200, 300 years ago, uh, rather than five minutes ago on CNN, which is, you know, I think our impulse to turn to that is very understandable when everything seems so new, but it's actually probably the opposite of the direction we should be going in. Um, I want to talk about some of the ways in which we are similar to ancient thinkers. The fact yeah, I, I, I agree, you know, the human nature has basically not changed um, for a very long time. And, and um, to assume that it has is, um, a very dangerous political mistake, right? Mm. Um, but can we also talk about some of the ways in which the ancients were different from us in some of their central assumptions? I mean, I, my husband always likes to joke that, you know, the idea of calling Aristotle white, mm. <laughs> for yeah. instance, is just like... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right, like he would, I mean, from the get-go, 
the fact that you're that we're not Greek would be an enormous, <laughs> oh enormous count, it would really count against us, right? In his <laughs> in his vision of things, um, right, the fact that we're speaking this barbarian tongue would be the right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what what are the what are the some of the central things that you think a, a reader of these texts needs to understand about the different ways, actually, in which, let's say, Athenians viewed the world like what are the what are some of the priors that they had that we just do not have that's a terrific question i mean the the black and white one is is a really great example of i think this this may be the fault of us americans you can tell me if you think i'm wrong but because our central racial trauma and it is a real historical trauma takes place across this divide between black people and white people the invention of black people, which is in large part kind of a product of the 19th century, gets retconned backward into every moment of history. And then all conflicts are kind of understood in terms of it or analogized to it. I mean, this doesn't just happen chronologically. It happens, you know, with Israel and Palestinians, it's, you know, which one of these groups is sort of more like black people in the American South and which one is sort of more like white people is like the implicit question that's being asked again and again. So that sort of thinking makes it very difficult to do what you always have to do, as you say, when you're approaching a kind of distant time period, time frame, which is try as hard as you can to kind of lay aside the frameworks that you use to look at the world and see what's the same and what's different. Um, so this is this is one, the kind of racial divide. It's not that there weren't prejudices in the ancient world, but as you indicate, they would have taken place along very different kind of lines. I mean, another example of this is sex, which we are used to thinking of in terms of these kind of immutable orientations. And that too, sort of a product of the 19th century, whether we, you know, endorse it or not, you know, sexual orientation is not a concept that's particularly useful for thinking about, you know, what's going on on the battlefield in, in Rome. I would say, you know, power and dominance is a much more useful way of thinking about the accusation against Caesar, for example, that he was a husband to women and a wife to men, you know, that that kind of thinking is even reflected in the Greek language. The, the words erastes and eromenos are two masculine words that are just the active and the passive form of the same verb, essentially. And so, you know, that's a kind of radical shift that has all sorts of implications also for thinking about male and female, manhood and, and womanhood. And there's even differences there between the, you know, sort of Jerusalem side of the Western tradition, the, the Hebrew texts and the, the Greek and Roman texts. Um, and then the other one that I think is really difficult for us to wrap our head around is, is about the sanctity of human life and even the universality of, of humanness. Um, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Tom Holland, but he wrote a book a few years back, Dominion, in which he described his own realization that as a classicist, as a student of ancient history, he couldn't actually recognize himself in, for example, the Spartan practice of throwing babies off of cliffs, because there was just a, a fundamental assumption about, you know, who deserves to live essentially in there. 
And it's easy to take this and start shading it over into evil, nasty ancient people. They kill babies, nice, good enlightenment children. Like we love everybody. That's not the case at all. But what it does enable us to do, I think, is notice points in the ancient world, places like, you know, the Stoa of the Hellenistic era, or of course, the biblical tradition, where this notion of universal humanity, mankind in the image of God, as the Hebrew Bible puts it, starts to emerge because it actually is emerging against the the governing assumption and contradistinction to what most people think, which I think is a very humbling and even in some sense, kind of frightening realization that is missing from a lot of our debates about, well, who was good and bad in the past, which has become obviously a major flashpoint. You know, there's a kind of assumption that you know, it's if it's a self-evident truth, then it just means everybody who is basically decent has always recognized that human life is, you know, of, of infinite value and, and always worthy of preservation and all this stuff. And we don't even understand we're inheritors of such a rich and deeply embedded tradition. We don't understand that it's by far not a given to believe and, and think that. And so, of course, I, I do believe that and I do think that and I am a product of this tradition, but it also, I think, bears remembering that, you know, we're actually not guaranteed that we didn't just come up with it out of the resources of our own kind of personal virtue and goodness and there but for the grace of God go we into all sorts of other things that we now recognize as, you know, nasty and abhorrent. And then the final part of this that I think is another kind of humbling aspect of studying the ancient texts is that you then start to ask, well, if the people the, that I think of as nasty and backwards in the past were, were in fact people trying their hardest to be virtuous and to know the truth, and yet were totally blind to what now looks like a screaming you know, deficiency in their moral sensibilities, where are those in in my life? I mean, this is what the, the psalm says, cleanse me of hidden faults. And that's kind of part of the beginning of wisdom is to realize that the world being in a tragic state as it is, we are always going to be emerging out of a kind of network of sin. And we may one day, because of our successes or progress today, look back on our present with horror and and we have to kind of accept that but we also have to extend that grace i think to you know the whole all the generations of men mm. i think i definitely sometimes fall into that trap you describe of um um uh leading with moral repulsion mm. when studying the ancients um you know infanticide slavery the list goes on and i'm coming at it with a with a christian sensibility mm. which means that i find I find those things shocking. Um, and, but you do, as you say, you do have to kind of, I, 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 um, I wrote this essay for First Things earlier this year about abortion and infanticide and um, it's called uh, We Are Repaganizing. Mm. And, um, you know, to some extent what I was doing in that essay was making an argument to people who, uh, who are pro-choice yeah. that there is something sinister about the pagan attitude towards abortion, infanticide, and indeed human life. 
but I also tried and I, and I, and I continue to try to give them their credit as well. You know, there is something very entrancing about paganism, actually. Obviously, mm. I'm using the, the term very loosely, but, you know, the idea of uh, the gods as being a part of this world, you know, is is it so captures the imagination and has obviously of course for um for so many generations of readers it has a it has a the roman and greek s- stories have have a, a, I, th- I think a magical power which is not really replicated in any other culture wow yes um that's very well put and i think that you know I've just been reading in my sort of daily scripture. I'm trying haltingly to go through the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. And so I'm going like real slow, you know, like verse by verse. And I finally, finally made it up to the the real bad times in the kingdom of, of Israel and I'm up to the exile. And of course, human sacrifice becomes kind of the cardinal sin there of, of the Jewish people that, that is the last straw in their exile. And it does seem that you know the the murder the taking of innocent life the the killing of of babies and the kind of blindness to the evil of that the blindness to the wrongness of of that comes is associated with these other gods who as you say also are hypnotic and entrancing i mean there's a reason that the solomon the wisest man ever to live follows after them because of his wife you know and that there's there's a reason why there are all these constant warnings against them is you know i i sort of have come to feel that worshiping some abstract power within the world is the default state of man because something we've lost our sense of as our mastery over nature and our technology grows stronger is that the world still is filled with forces and patterns of change that are much more powerful than us. And we don't, we don't imagine that we expiate those forces or that we bring sacrifices to them because we don't call them by the same kind of anthropological names that the Greeks did. But the structure of what we do is actually now very similar. I mean, I'm making my way here cautiously step by step to an argument that we're actually seeing the return of paganism and that you are absolutely right to associate kind of our abortion regime with pagan child sacrifice. And it's very easy, I think, to slip into like kind of jeremiads about this, but I'm I'm really just sort of making an observation about the structure of pagan belief versus the structure of what came to dominate the West, which is, you know, monotheistic, moral, ethical monotheism, um, and, and Christianity especially. And so, yeah, now, like when Apple makes a video in which Octavia Spencer just walks on camera as Mother Earth and says, I'm an angry goddess that demands you sacrifice your productivity because I will return, rebuke you with, you know, the the laws of nature. They think that's a joke. I'm not so sure that it is. In other words, I think that's a perfect depiction of what many modern environmentalists sort of believe. 
And environmentalists are not the only ones, you know, abortion activists have their kind of Ishtar to, to worship. And, you know, they're not the only ones for whom, like, in the absence of Christianity or after Christianity, the world has started to look very pagan and the old gods or what the church fathers might have called the demons have started to come back. I'm uh, interviewing um, the historian Diane Perkis soon um, for the podcast. I don't, I don't know if you ever crossed paths when you were at Oxford. Um, she's mm. in, a, in a different department, but re you know, relatedly, yeah. she's um, interested in uh, British folklore in particular. And um, uh, she wrote this amazing book about fairies. And the thing that really jumps out um, in reading about um, British ideas about fairies is one, how much of it is borrowed from... Uh, classical stories and mm. actually she says that there was a surprising amount of um of 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 trade you know both literally and in ideas between um celtic bush isles and you know it, it's it's not she thinks that actually some of these stories have come from greece and rome over a very long long way mm -hmm. um but also that um these do seem to be quite instinctive ways of understanding the world the idea of nature spirits the idea of um I, I don't want to call it superstition because that sounds dismissive but the idea mm. of the world being enchanted often in extremely sinister ways does seem to be quite an instinctive feeling in humans and it's one that can coexist reasonably comfortably alongside monotheism but sometimes there are sources of conflict Mm. And uh, the, the, I, um, my my feeling reading this book, I tweeted about this at the time, was that um, uh, wow, where is all this belief in fairies gone? You know, we have this like rich, rich tradition of British um, British folklore and and um, kind of folk religion. Where's it gone? And I googled it, and it turns out it's not gone anywhere. An enormous <laughs> number of people still believe <laughs> still believe this stuff. Just not me. Apparently, I'm left out. I don't throw salt salt over my shower, I'm, my shoulder. I'm not um, scared of black cats, any of this stuff, but. Uh, like clearly, uh, I don't know. Astrology would be one example, though, of people still being drawn towards something that looks a bit like paganism. Environmentalism, I completely agree with you. Gaia is a is a vengeful god of the old style, right? Yeah, and they all all the idols promise you the same thing. They promise you control over nature because if you mm -hmm. offer them stuff, you'll you'll get stuff back. Yeah, transactional. But, yes. Right. Um, but but then they they demand sacrifice, right? They'll, they'll demand mm. you kill your kill your child. They'll demand you you know impoverish yourself that you starve. All that all this stuff. Um, the fairies thing is is really on point, and this is kind of my my new pet obsession in some ways. I mean, you know, Mary Harrington's out there writing about how the fairies are returning as the electric lights kind of uh, start to contract and she was on my podcast young heretics and said something that i thought was really smart which is you know the world's getting re-enchanted and you can say that it's an egregore that emerges from the collective kind of online trends of human psychology and you can make this long explanation or you can just say demons and and increasingly those words are becoming more direct and exact and and basically convey what we mean interestingly independent of of our sort of different metaphysical assumptions like there's a lot of different metaphysical standpoints from which it is now possible to talk about demons and about fairies and about all of these supernatural entities and you know you touched on 
astrology. This is my new book that I've been working on. I've been talking about it a lot in, in Young Heretics is, um, you know, a kind of a history of science from this viewpoint. Um, and one of the things that set me off on this is a passing comment by C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, in which he says, you know, we think of the Middle Ages as the high noon of superstition and magic. But actually, there was very little magic under the medieval church. And it was the dawn of science that saw a really flourishing interest in magic. And you think, well, why might that be? Well, spells and scientific experiments have almost exactly the same epistemological structure and always have. It was the Chaldeans in Babylon who were both reading entrails and learning to chart the paths of the heavens or the, the planets across the sky. And it turns out entrails don't actually accurately predict the outcome of events, but the movement of the planets across the sky does have a logic. And we kind of dismiss all of that as, you know, astrological mumbo jumbo. But what they were, their fundamental insight, which was true, is that, you know, there is a, if you understand the logic to these things, you can predict the future. And if you can predict the future, you can intervene and, and make changes. And my favorite fact from this era is that, you know, the, the Babylonians used a, a, a 60, a base 60 counting system. So in the way that we go up to 10 and then start again, they would go up to 60 and start again. And this is the reason why we have 12 months, why we have 12 stars of signs of the Zodiac, why there are 360 degrees in the triangle, why, you know, there are, why that number keeps re recurring in many of our mathematical. So, so that foundation remains. And then in the scientific revolution, I mean, Kepler practiced astrology until the day he died. Newton was writing commentaries on Hermes Trismegistus and the Emerald Tablet and alchemy. Um, they all basically thought there was something in it. And what they thought in it was what they extracted out as, as science, um, which means that in the structure of our scientific language, there are all sorts of words that sound physical to us. But when we start to examine them, they actually turn out to be spiritual or immaterial. Um, the first person to make this objection of all people was William of Ockham, who's often accused of the kind of heresy and was accused of heresy because of his sort of nominalism. But it was his nominalism that enabled him to say as the concept of momentum was coming into being. Like you guys have thought, think you've discovered this new thing called momentum, but where is it? Like, how do I touch it? Where do I find it? This is true also of gravity. This was Leibniz's big example, of uh, accusation against Newton. Um, Kepler toyed with calling the force of gravity the anima motrix, the moving soul of the world. And so when you start to kind of unpack some of this stuff, you realize like none of our paganism went away. It just got kind of papered over with this Latinate gloss that makes it sound impersonal and lifeless, except that all of the things that those words, when you open up the box of those words, you end up finding what? I don't know, spirits, essentially. Mm. I agree with Mary. I mean, Mary is the patron saint of this podcast, right? She's here in the room with us now. Yeah. Um, she's completely right about demons. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, right. I was joking to a Catholic friend recently that like, I'm not really sure if I believe in God, but I think I definitely believe in demons. Yeah, <laughs> in the, yes. In the, I mean, so do lots yeah. of them. So yeah. lots of horror movie makers now. I mean, if you watch yeah. Mike Flanagan, that's what he believes. He believes in demons, but no God. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that, in the sense that I think that describing someone as being possessed by demons is more 
emotionally accurate than describing mm. someone as having some sort of biomedical problem, which mm -hmm. is not to say that there isn't something happening at the molecular level, which is producing what you see, but like in terms of the most direct way of actually describing it, mm. those spiritual, that spiritual vocabulary and those spiritual models are, I think, more useful. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think I agree with you and I think I've noticed recently that it's also actually more compassionate. Um, one of the reasons I think we all shied away from using language of demonic possession is it sounded and was was often very accusatory. You've opened yourself up to demons and that's because you're bad and you have some sort of moral deficiency. But the premise of demonic possession is actually that we are not the only ones that are entirely to blame for the brokenness of the world, that there is a, a larger kind of hierarchy of, of evil that has imprisoned us. And, you know, I, I think it's Augustine who says you know, our obedience is sort of, or our disobedience is lesser than Satan's disobedience, which is why we're capable of salvation and forgiveness and all this stuff. And there's a wonderful moment in one of the demonic possession stories in the gospel that has always haunted me. Uh, because you can't really get it across in the English, but the, in the Greek, there's this man possessed by a demon, and the Greek calls him something like Endymon is Dominos or something. Like he was the demoned one, he was the endemoned person. And it's only when Jesus approaches him and starts to speak to the demon as something that's inside the man that the human being has a kind of separate dignity and life outside of this foreign imposition. Um, and so the narrator kind of adopts, I think, the our assumption, which is like, this person is somehow broken or bad. And then Jesus, as like the first step in his exorcism, says, no, this is a person, a child of God, with a foreign evil entity inside of him. Um, and some of that stuff, I think, like we could, as you say, we could sort of do with a lot more of it in our thinking about what we can now call mental illness and so forth. I listened to a fascinating podcast recently. It was an episode of the Pints with a Coinus podcast, um, which some listeners might be familiar with. And it was a, like two or three hours interview with a, a, an exorcist. Ah. And it was just wow. like, <laughs> like really, really interesting listening, but also very disorientating listening for someone who, you know, I, I, I say I believe in demons. I, I'm not actually as attuned towards the enchanted world as many people are you know I don't I, I've never been drawn to astrology you know as I have mentioned many times on this podcast you know I find I find the metaphysics of Christianity harder to grapple with than I do the 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 cultural and moral ideas you know I'm not actually that woo mm -hmm. but clearly <laughs> most people are and in fact I think trying to expunge the woo <laughs> from humanity has been a terrible mistake because what we end up doing is just um either being utterly miserable or um being drawn to worse beliefs um or some finding places i mean i was thinking as you were describing um these uh the the uh, biblical accounts of 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 demon possession uh, the 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 popular form that you will now mostly see those kind of ideas in now is 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 like children's fiction and science. I was thinking of Harry mm. Potter, you know, a Horcrux, Harry's Horcrux, you know, yeah. the shard of Voldemort's soul is kind of a demon, <laughs> right? Like, which is like the and obviously there's so much Christian and pagan influence in Harry Potter, but people still clearly 
want this stuff. They really, really want this stuff. But it's as if it has to be confined to the world of entertainment. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, we talk about the, um, you know, the demon movie, the exorcism movie. And don't get me wrong, I, I just rewatched The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I think it's one of the best, you know, dis- depictions of spiritual reality um, in, in quite some time. But there's something to what you say that's worth highlighting, which is, you know, the Bible, the Bible is often presented as if it says, don't practice astrology and don't practice div- divination because it doesn't work. It's not rational. And God is going to teach you sort of the right mathematics that will give you the, the truth of the future or something. But that's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, the Bible usually says things like don't mess around with astrology, with crystals, with divination, because it's very real, because it is, in fact, a, an existing force in the world. And it, usually the way of talking about it is the other, these are the other Elohim. Um, and, and interestingly, in our translations, we tend to sanitize this language because I think many modern Christians are sort of afraid of attributing what the uh, Muslims would call attributing partners to God, that is admitting the possibility that there are other gods or, or you know, flirting with, with polytheism. But the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, is, is quite forthright in saying things like, you know, there are other gods and they are essentially fallen angels, demons. Um, they're powers that are greater than you, but not the greatest power. And God's claim, you know, the claim of Adonai or Yotevave or whatever the name is of this one God is, is not to be the only supernatural intelligence in the world, but to be the source of all other existence and to be the highest supernatural intelligence. Um, and, you know, right, as, as you indicate, like there's sort of a range of different ways that you can attribute consciousness or not attribute consciousness to these other entities. And at the end of the day, it, it becomes less and less clear why it matters like what the distinction is or what difference it makes because they act as it we can talk about them as if they were you know foreign entities and they act sort of that way and certainly the way that people treat them creates this little like silhouette outline of a intelligent being that we're all forced to reckon and interact with um and so yeah hard to know why uh why we wouldn't just talk about it that way irrespective of where we are vis-a-vis like theological metaphysics mm. bring back angels yeah and demons. exactly, exactly. <laughs> well if you're yeah. gonna have the demons i mean you might as well plunk for the angels that's the other thing otherwise it's a bleak world out there right yes <laughs> <laughs> um to change subject from demons, uh-huh. although you know, by all means, bring them up whenever they whenever they crop up. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier um, uh, ancient attitudes towards sexuality being different from ours, and you have you have um, you write about this really well in the book as well. Um, it's worth, I think, dwelling on that for a moment because I I I wrote years and years ago now an essay about the debt that transgenderism owes mm. to. Um, dualism in that this idea of your soul having a distinct gender identity which is separate from your body is actually incoherent in most cultures right um most interestingly there's this um 
uh, anthropology book, um, again, published at least 20 years ago before this was really controversial, called Travesti, which is about Brazilian transsexual prostitutes and um, the the very different way that, that Brazilians understand um, not just transgenderism, but also sexuality, in that I think, although I want to hear your view on this, they took a more um, classical view of it in that it's not so much about the the how to how to say this elegant elegantly it's about the penetrator and the penetratee are right. the crucial sexual roles right. rather than masculine and feminine per se and i think am i right that that is also a more classical way generally of understanding sexuality yeah i i think so it's certainly a classical way and different interpreters will differ about to what extent it was the only or the dominant way of thinking about these things but it certainly emerges to an extent in plato in the symposium and i think part of that might be because of plato's habit of thought that tends to take individual particular instances and view them simply as kind of tokens or examples of some larger abstraction and this is like a big subject to bite off, but why not charge boldly into it? I mean, it, it like the whole thing about the forms and the ladder of love and this fa these famous elements of platonic thought are that our momentary day-to-day -day experience, any individual instance or, or event is kind of best and most fully understood as one instance of this much larger abstraction and kind of eternal absolute ideal. And one of the things that I think this does is lead Plato at least to think about erotic relationships less and less in terms of the embodied particularities of physical Congress, which might invite you to consider the difference between men and women. And more and more to think about, yeah, roles of, of penetration, right? Who's putting in and who's receiving. And in the symposium, famously, this gets very intellectualized. Like it ends up being about teachers and students and how when you are kind of overflowing with an idea or with the thought, you need somebody willing to, waiting and ready to receive some beautiful soul. And this will then lead up ultimately to a kind of communion with with the beautiful in itself. And then there's like, you know, that very lovely set of platonic ideas. And then there's the, the very much also present, you know, incredibly crude application of it by like soldiers raping captives in war and just these, you know, much more aggressive power dynamic ideas about sexuality and and who counts as a man and who counts as a woman and so yeah in all of that both the kind of ostensibly rarefied and in the crude and aggressive i think there's like a lot of the same kind of thinking that seems to obtain in transgender radical transgenderism that like your body is if it's not a total accident and just a postmodern lump of flesh, then what it actually is is kind of one 
distant emanation of the transcendent soul that is you and that you know your task in life is kind of to express endlessly or embody endlessly this this perfect divine spark and i guess one reason why i i hesitate to associate this with the classical greek view altogether is that for me one of the most powerful answers to that whole way of thinking comes from Aristotle, who says, okay, there are such things as abstractions, and there are such things as, you know, forms and all of that. But we never encounter them except in the flesh, except embodied in some kind of matter. And so where is this like, abstract man, Aristotle might say to a transgender person, like you say that you feel like a man, that your soul is male, that you have a you know, male gender identity, but like, point me to it. Like, what is it? Where is it? And this remains the unanswerable question for radical gender theorists to this day is like, what are you talking about? And, and why should I treat it as anything other than essentially a, a theological or a spiritual claim and kind of a dubious one at that? Um, the Christians, especially after Thomas Aquinas, were much more convinced by the Aristotelian account that says, no, you know, in the first chapters of the Bible, God breathes his breath into a lump of clay. And it's that fusion of breath and, and clay that becomes a nefesh chayim, a living soul. So even your soul isn't actually really this kind of ghost in the machine or some airy floating thing. It's the structure and the form of, of your body having life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that in the classical tradition, we can find resources for thinking our way out of this kind of purely power dynamic or purely disembodied idea of sex and sexuality. But we can also find, I think, the roots, the very deep roots of that way of thinking, which I think have to do with just the discomfort of living in a fallen body and the you know eternal temptation to Gnosticism and all of this stuff that is now very much in evidence. Um, could you explain to um, listeners and indeed um, any uh, podcast hosts listening um, what Gnosticism really means because, so, <laughs> because I see it being thrown around a lot yeah, in relation yeah. to transgenderism in particular and I've never quite wrapped my head around um, what it means okay um, well me neither but <laughs> let me say some things that might that let me say some things that have been helpful to me in, in okay. my perplexity um, so the root word of Gnosticism is gnosis knowledge and so it's actually kind of appropriate that it's a word that people keep using without knowing what it means, because a foundational premise or a, like a major kind of operating feature of Gnosticism is that it represents secret knowledge, knowledge that the, the masses can't attain. And therefore, it must be something about the world that isn't immediately apparent from your everyday experience. And so Gnostics of every variety pride themselves and often even represent themselves as like an, a select elite who have learned the truth where everybody else is dis deluded and deceived. And so then I think the question becomes, in what way and according to what problems are they deluded and deceived? And it usually has to do with 
the relationship of the spiritual world to what we would think of as kind of the obviously real world, the everyday. Um, and, and I like to think of this as ultimately cashing out in some terms of the matrix theory, like somewhere you're going to get to a point of view that everything that seems obvious and real to you is like a simulation or is like kind of a, a imaginary act of deceit. And in the Gnostic Gospels and some of the kind of post-Christian texts that we have that give us some insight into Gnosticism as a heresy of Christianity, because it's not only that, but it is it is that it's, it's a heresy of Christianity that reaches back into like Neoplatonism and certain strains of, of you know, Jewish, uh, I guess, heresy as well. Um, it, it, it will often those, these texts will often treat either the God of the Bible full stop or the God of the Old Testament as a as a deceitful demon, as having represented himself as God, but actually being a renegade demiurge, somebody that God had appointed to build the world, a la Plato's Timaeus, but who went wild and deceived us and trapped us in our bodies and trapped us in the world of the flesh and the spirit. This guy's name is like Yaltabaoth, I think, in some of these in some of these texts and um, uh, elsewhere, he might even be associated with Lucifer. In this way, it's very closely related to the Marcionite heresy, which is the heresy that Old Testament God is is bad, evil God, and New Testament God is is good, nice, daddy God. Um, and and there's different versions of that, but you can see probably as I am groping in the dark for a good description of Gnosticism, why it would be readily associated with the belief that your body is uh as as an encumbrance is an hindrance as a hindrance probably because it was given to you by this you know nasty deceiver god and certainly because it's your most direct conduit to the world of the senses which in turn is the thing that everybody knows so that can't be where the truth is because it's way too accessible it must be in a retreat from the body in a kind of uh, rejection of the body um and so when i think when people as I just sort of flippantly did, use Gnosticism to talk about transgenderism, they're doing it because, you know, that impulse or that retreat away from your embodied self, your tr treatment of it as a, a kind of, um, a, a, as an insult or a, something that's beneath you, something that needs to be rewired and reconfigured, um, that's a very Gnostic impulse. And it does also come along with, and this is also Mary's point, it comes along with all sorts of, you know, um, claims to secret knowledge. Like if you're the initiate, if you're the elect, if you're woke, you'll say the right words, you'll know the right things. And if you're on the outside, you're, you know, cast into the exterior darkness. Uh, to what extent do you also think that the, um, the, this, the deep suspicion of the body, which is manifest in transgenderism, but not just in transgenderism, you know, that the, um, the horror of motherhood that you will hear from some sort of mm -hmm. young anti-natal progressives also is very rooted in a fear of the body you know um yeah. and um to what extent do you think that that also actually has its roots in um in christianity i was thinking of particularly you know i'm thinking of the um holy anorexics um hmm. of the medieval period and the um the sort of spiritual um ascension to be found in rejecting the body 
Do you yeah. think that that persists still in some of this kind of gendered body body politics that we find ourselves experiencing? Right. Well, first of all, I think Gnosticism is a Christian heresy for a reason. In other words, it's something to which Christianity, among other worldviews, is susceptible. It's a kind mm -hmm. of easily you can easily see how you get from actual Christianity to that sort of misinterpretation of it. Mm. And and then I think. Yeah, you have to grapple with the role of women and, and the feminine in Christianity, because I do think Christianity has both an idea of, you know, women as a sort of biological phenomenon and a, an idea of, of womanhood, which even though it is never separate from embodied, you know, womanness, is in fact also has a spiritual quality and a spiritual dimension. And the best way that I can put it, again, speaking very broadly and acknowledging that other people are going to have like wildly different interpretations of this is, you know, frequently Christians are prone to say that the Virgin Mary undoes the sin of Eve. And one of the things I think we mean by that is, you know, through a through pregnancy and through giving birth to this sinless child, the son of God, um, Mary embodies and represents the promise that flesh is not actually doomed altogether to, to death, that it can, in fact, give life and can embody new life. And Mary is in this, I think, kind of the type of womanhood in this way of looking at things. Uh, which is not to say that, you know, pregnancy is the only way to truly be a woman for, for Christianity, but just that in, in just the same way, to use a rough analogy, that like a man in war is kind of an archetype of manhood, but you can be manly if not in war. Mary in her pregnancy and in giving birth and in her labor pains is um, an archetype of of womanhood. And what I'm about to say will help explain one reason why I personally am profoundly opposed to some Catholic theological ideas like that Mary didn't suffer labor pains or that she remained perpetually virgin or all of these other things. Because um, for me, what's so profound and beautiful about the Immaculate Conception and, and the virgin birth is that it affirms this about the human body and it says basically the, the the act of giving birth is your most direct sensory evidence of the fact that the flesh is a conduit for life that it actually can take on life in the way that you know bronze takes on the shape of a man that the flesh has this like amazing the human flesh has this amazing ability to create new life um and that's what the incarnation does also right famously childbirth is very painful and uncomfortable and difficult and uh, involves uh, and also distorts the body and also you know causes all sorts of crazy things to happen with hormones and things that people often have considered kind of a burden and an imposition and and that the Bible does represent as a consequence of the fall, right? That is kind of one of Eve's big consequences is that, she, you know, she will bring forth children in, in pain. 
And my way of reading this would be to say like, yeah, because now that sin and death have entered the world, there is something in the world that actually like gnashes its teeth against this sacred thing, which is the embodiment of, of the Godhead and, and of the soul in, in human flesh. But of course, it's very easy, again, to slip into instead what has often been said, which is like, you know, your pregnancy is kind of your sin, right? Like the things that are going wrong with it, the things that are hurt about it, all of that is like, you know, that's kind of your fault because like you were there with Eve when you, when she ate the apple and all of that. Um, you know, to me, this is, this is very wrong, but you're absolutely right. I think to I, I sort of suggest that it's a, a strain of, of thought that then leads us directly into all of that antibody stuff and all of that kind of recoiling from the flesh and recoiling from the body. And I think there's a reason why to bring this back to like transgenderism and all of that. There's a reason why uh, so much of this third or fourth or 12th wave feminism or whatever you want to call the Judith Butler era. Um, I'm sure you can educate me more clearly on what exactly wave it is, but like <laughs> you teach me about narcissism. I'll teach you about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you could please fill me in on like, where, we, where we stand, that would be helpful. And um, no, but you know, one thing about it is it does trend always to this horror of womanhood and a horror, especially of pregnancy and the sort of, you know, on the on the label, it doesn't say that, you know, it's not expressly theorized, except in certain really extreme cases that like womanhood is worse than manhood, often just the opposite. But like, where does all the rapid onset gender dysphoria set in? It's among, you know, prepubescent and pubescent girls. And I, I think there are both like spiritual reasons why that would be and really obvious kind of philosophical reasons which is this does to me kind of represent the latest strand of a perversion a gnostic perversion of what christianity is actually kind of getting at with with its story i mean it's like heresies are so funny because they're just like a hair's breadth away from really beautiful and important ideas half the time and Gnosticism is sort of one of those. And so for me, it's like the the role of Mary and the role of women in Christianity is kind of to the most sublime way of dealing with this at a spiritual level. But hopefully I've now rambled enough that you can sort of see how it shades over into all of the stuff that transgenderism also represents. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, paid subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much.